morning and welcome to Rising. We have a perfectly adequate show for you today. Brianna, nice to see you back. It's nice to be back. Took a little bit of a break to record with Russell Brand. He's not very flexible with his uh, scheduling, I think, because he's across the pond. Um, but that was fun, and I'm hoping that we can get him on Rising soon and a little bit of a tit for tat. Wonderful. Is that episode out yet? I believe it is on Rumble. Okay, cool. Yeah. Now we look forward to checking that out. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, what are we talking about today? Uh, well, Robbie, new in political news. Donald Trump says he would testify in his own defense at a potential trial. He didn't specify which of the four indictments he was referring to. The former president, of course, faces criminal charges in New York, Florida, Georgia, and Washington, D.C. If you have to go to trial, will you testify in your own defense? Oh, yes, absolutely. You'll so, take the stand. That I would. That I look forward to because that's just like Russia, Russia, Russia. That's all the fake information from Russia, Russia, Russia. Remember when the dossier came out and everyone said, "Oh, that's so terrible, that's so terrible," and then it turned out to be it was a political report put out by Hillary Clinton and the DNC. They paid millions for it. They gave it to Christopher Steele. They paid millions and millions of dollars for it, and it was all fake. It was. No, I think fake. that obstruction no, charge is going to get the trial, Mr. President. I, I think that. Okay, if you do, and they ask you on on the stand, did you order anyone to move boxes? How will you answer? I'm not answering that question for you, but I'm totally covered under the law. Okay. If you read the Presidential Records Act. Just read it. You take a look at it. Meanwhile, a Colorado-based watchdog group is suing to try to block Trump from the state's ballot in 2024. The group contends he's actually disqualified per the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause, which states that anyone who has engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof is actually disqualified from holding office. Um, we've talked about that uh, before. Um, you know, so. It's almost good that that is being there's a lawsuit now because if I, I very much doubt the Supreme Court is going to say is going to buy this argument and say Trump can't appear on the ballot. But if for some reason they are going to do that, we need that figured out now so that he's not the candidate um, rather than at the last minute when it's too late to print someone else's name on the ballot. I'm sure there are actually a lot of um conservative uh, Republican talking heads out there who will say, you know, this is an attack on democracy. How dare mm. um, they try to not let Trump's name appear on the ballot, but are secretly hoping they succeed so that they get a candidate that they think would fare better against Joe Biden. I was looking at uh, recent polling. We're actually going to talk more about it in a minute. But you know, Trump, like even with Biden, like one point over Biden, Nikki Haley up seven points over Biden. You know, up up one point is close. Up seven points, that would be if that held, that would be a huge, massive victory for the Republican Party. So yeah, I mean, we'll get to that in that segment. It's yeah. an interesting question whether or not electability is driving voters to Trump the way that electability is is the factor that moves so many Democrats to mm -hmm. the polls. But it is back to the uh, question of whether or not he's disqualified under the Fourteenth Amendment. It actually has been these two prominent conservative law professors yeah. uh, who have been making this case, uh, William. Baud of the University of Chicago and Michael Stokes Polson of the University of St. Thomas. They say that they started looking into this question not really knowing the answer. They've come to the conclusion that they think that there is a credible legal argument to bar him. The legal argument and the political argument are two very different things. Uh, how the public would respond to it in another layer of a perception that he's being kind of undemocratically right. prevented from Taken running for office. Taken out by the process rather than the people. Right. Now, that Public perception might begin to change depending on the outcome of the criminal trials. 
will the public accept a judgment or legal opinion that he is disqualified under the Constitution from running again if, in fact, there had been one, two, three, or four successful uh, um, judgments against him in the court of law. And I do, particularly in the Georgia case, wonder if people increasingly yeah. accept that kind of an outcome as they realize that all of the hand-wringing about 1-6 on the day is not actually what the, the, the bulk of the concern is. It is this conspiracy weeks in advance, yeah. especially now, it seems there's been reporting that some of the uh, co-conspirators uh, are flipping on him already. And how many yeah, former heroes for him. going against Trump are people going to be able to ignore? People who were on the right team, eventually is that going to start to crack through? I mean, we've seen very little evidence of that so far. Yeah. I don't know that it will change the public perception of Trump within the Republican Party. Um, it will undoubtedly complicate his legal defense to have people flipping on him. I mean, he's in for a lot of trouble there and a lot of trouble in the uh, in the, the the boxes case, as Hugh Hewitt was pointing out there. Now, you know, Trump cites Russiagate, and I think that's just, you know, a powerful reminder of, of what a boy who cried wolf moment that was for um, the mainstream media and many Democratic operatives and our own, our own national security officials to have gone so hard on that um, narrative and mm -hmm. have, have so little to show for it over time that there is an instinctive um, distrust of some of these, um, you know, narratives about malfeasance that Trump is involved in, even though even now we're staring at things that are uh, um, more, much more substantive. I mean, there was a, a, a Russia, the Russiagate stuff was really undercut by what came out later, by sure. the, the claims that were made about influence on social media, by, you know, then by the um, Hunter Biden story being, mm -hmm. being uh, described as another example of, of Russia's reach into our electoral process mm -hmm. and that being totally debunked. So, um, so there are, I mean, there are, people who are just not going to believe it because they were lied to before. What do you make of Donald Trump's choice to ignore what seems to be widely held legal advice to not testify in any of these trials? Again, he didn't specify in that clip which, mm -hmm. which of the cases, perhaps all of the cases, he might be willing to testify in. Um, do you think that that is a good move kind of as a legal strategy, as a political strategy? No. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not. It's definitely not a good move as a legal strategy. A political strategy, sure. He loves the and he loves the spectacle anyway. That's yeah. what his whole run for president was about. So he's not going to. He's not going to not take the spotlight when it's offered to him. Um, also, he doesn't get and historically has not gotten great legal advice. He's relied on people like Rudy Giuliani well, and Sidney Powell his, who are going to share a cell with him. Exactly. And uh, and yeah. and also, um, look, he's a. He, like he was saying, he, he didn't want to. He didn't do the debates. Obviously, mm -hmm. he hasn't done. He didn't do the most recent debate. We'll see if he does a future one. But I, I saw him say, this, say the other day in an interview that he would love to do a debate with Megan of Harry and Megan because he doesn't like how she hand, how she interacted with the Queen. Like this is, it's a very celebrity. I mean, he comes from reality TV. That's what it is. Sure, but the courtroom isn't Celebrity Apprentice, and the question is well, whether or not he's absolutely going to treat it. He's like it going is. to, uh, and that might hurt, be a good political move for him politically. But yes. is he going to hurt his legal case by taking the stand? Yes. There was, um, there were people opining earlier yeah. uh, uh, last month that. The one particular defense in the Georgia case would require him to take the stand, basically arguing that he sincerely believed counsel's advice 
that there had actually been fraud yeah. that would have justified the slates of electors that he commissioned being authentic and real uh, and not an intentional fraud and misrepresentation. Yes. Uh, but he ha would have to testify to that belief himself. Right. And so people were wondering, is that defense not going to be available to him? Because obviously he's not going to take the stand. That would be disastrous and really ill-advised. But it looks like he, at very least, is considering it if he's willing to say to a reporter um, in an interview, I'm completely open to taking the stand. Yeah, and uh, that might be fine. A, a jury might find that to be a credible argument. That might be his best move. What he's still going to have problems with, even if it's believed that he sincerely did think like, I, I don't think that's a crazy defense at all, but all of the, because he's part of this is being charged with some conspiracy with all these other people who did even more questionable things who will not be as able to persuasively argue that they actually thought the election was stolen and are accused of like forging documents and things of that nature right because he's being he's being they're prosecuting him as the as the central figure in sort of like a mob kind of way mm -hmm. as the central figure in this conspiracy that has more obvious criminal dimensions that even if it's totally believed that he actually thought that the things that he, the associates did who are flipping on him are, are going to say he ordered them to do it whether it's true right. or not right and also it's all going to be very bad for him. he got different it, you said a few minutes ago he got bad legal advice well he didn't just get bad legal advice he got a lot of good legal advice that he chose to ignore and cherry-picked. He threatened to fire the whole Department of Justice because they were giving him his Department of Justice, Republican-appointed Departments of Justice uh, figures, because they were giving him the advice that we investigated all your fraud claims, we tried to see if there was any malfeasance in this election, we found none, you lost. He kept cherry-picking attorneys and firing people or threatening to fire people until he got the answer that he wants. So it wasn't exactly that he didn't get good counsel, is that he thought he could cherry-pick the answers that he wanted, and is that going to stand up as he's trying to testify and defend himself in the course of one of these trials if all the other people who were either mm -hmm. coerced, fired, ignored uh, are testifying to the contrary? Yeah. Um, obviously, the Republican Party still has time to avoid this headache and could read the poll numbers and back someone for electability arguments, but, I mean, maybe they just they think Joe Biden is such a weak candidate that they can win with anyone and they'd rather win with Trump. Well, the uh, polls suggest that they be. can win with pretty much any, anyone. It's just how close that margin of victory is going yeah. to be. Yeah, we'll see. More rising right after this. Can money really buy happiness? Well, for some, it seems like it might. Son of billionaire Warren Buffett, Howard Buffett has spent much of his life throwing his dollars around to make the Illinois city of Decatur his personal playground. This is according to reporting in The Lager. Over the past few decades, the Howard Buffett Foundation reportedly spent over $200 million in a city of 70,000 people to make his dreams reality, funding many assets in the town so he could call them his own, including donating money to build a law enforcement hub in the city, only for Howard to become sheriff of a county in Decatur, the same town where the Howard G. Buffett Foundation now sits. Hmm. However, while his donations bought him political fame, it is unclear if this has made Howard Buffett immune to challengers Journalist Amos Barshad joins us now to tell us more about his time in Decatur and what he learned about how Buffett took Decatur by storm. Welcome, Amos. Thank you for having me. 
All right, so some people might say, okay, one of the, the son of the richest man in the world, one of the richest men in the world has taken an interest in a small and declining town, trying to make it a better place. Uh, why should, why might people be skeptical of his involvement in this town of what, uh, 70,000 people or so? That's right. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a very fair point. And uh, yeah, I would encourage um, anyone to read the piece and to kind of learn for themselves. You know, my, my hope was to report the facts um, as I learned them and uh, uh, to figure out exactly um, what it means. I think there's many people in the town that uh, are definitely uh, very appreciative of his uh, spending. Um, and then there's some people that feel that, uh, yeah, he has bought uh, political capital with the spending. Um, uh, specifically, a lot of that is tied up in a conversation that occurred locally around a uh, the opening of a dispensary after Illinois legalized uh, marijuana statewide. Um, there was uh, some uh, reasons to believe that uh, through his influence, he helped uh, uh, basically shut down the dispensary. Um, and so, yeah, I just spent some time with some activists and some you know local people who are really involved in the community. Um, and they told me their stories and they told me how it felt to live uh, within this town where you know that there's a, you know, a person who has taken this, uh, you know, profound interest in your town. Um, he was um, uh, you know, raised in uh, Nebraska where, you know, his famous father uh, is from. Um, and uh, so it's almost this happenstance thing. He came to town in the nineties to uh, work for a agriculture giant, Archer Daniel Midlands as an executive. Uh, and since then uh, he spent a lot of money in all kinds of different ways. Um, really, uh, you know, you can uh, go on the Howard uh, uh, G. Buffett Foundation website and read the annual reports. Um, you know, he spends money all over the world. So this is just one uh, one more place that he has an interest. But, you know, for me, I felt what was valuable is to is to learn and hear from people who live in this town uh, to find out what it feels like when you know that there's a, a very, 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 very rich person uh, who is uh, who is pushing your town in certain directions. Tell us more about the actions he took uh, with, with respect to this marijuana dispensary. Um, I want marijuana to be uh, legal. I think it should be your right to, you know, take take by whatever substances you want. And it sounds like the people of the town thought so as well. And then he took some actions um, because he's personally opposed to it, perhaps, to um, stymie that political development. Um, yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, if in this town, what was interesting to me was that the pro-dispensary sentiment that I heard wasn't even necessarily a personal idea of, I want to go buy marijuana. It was really about, this is going to be a uh, reliable tax uh, revenue generator. Um, there had been this uh, this history with this, um, this mall that wasn't built in the 70s that a lot of people locally uh, still felt that the city council at that time had made a mistake. Um, and it felt a lot of people just were, were drawing the parallel with that. Like this is our opportunity to to uh, to create a local institution, tax generator. Uh, it really, really wasn't about oh, I want to be able to drive to buy marijuana. Uh, it was about what's best for our community, you know. And uh, and uh, you know Howard uh, Howard Buffett's uh, uh, personal um, uh, tendency, I think, uh, you know, not to speak for him, but my understanding is he has kind of a uh, kind of an old school, you know, belief in the in the war on drugs. Um, and uh, has a personal uh, uh, feeling uh, backed up by by research that he that he believes in 
um, that marijuana is bad for communities. So effectively what happened, uh, and this was found through some uh, public information requests by uh, local activists, uh, they were able to discover uh, the manner in which he was uh, uh, kind of peppering these city council officials with information, uh, encouraging them to vote against the dispensary. They also were, were able to found, find uh, this invitation to a meeting with a lot of uh, local power brokers, the mayor, the uh, uh, then Macon County Sheriff, the police chief, um, and he uh, kind of called them together soon after uh, marijuana was legalized statewide, knowing that this next you know conversation would be, are we going to have a dispensary indicator? And that uh, you know we don't know what happened in that meeting, and we don't know exactly uh, if and when exactly it occurred. But we know he invited all these people with the with the uh, you know intention of presumably uh, influencing to his point of view, which he uh, which by the facts uh, on the ground uh, is what he was able to do later on once the dispensary was voted down. Uh, certain city council members um you know effectively acknowledged that they did not feel comfortable voting for it considering what uh buffett's foundation had done locally um there's also an interesting uh other element to it which kind of comes back to what you guys were talking about uh you know the idea of well is this necessarily bad that he spent all this money so part of what he spent was on a, a major um uh addiction recovery center which i think uh, uh everyone that i spoke to was in support of is the services that they provide um, uh, are, are great. Um, uh, the, the interesting thing uh, kind of came about when the mayor uh, at some point basically said she didn't feel comfortable voting for the dispensary when at the same time there's an addiction recovery center. So it just was this kind of a interesting uh, dynamic where, she, where the idea uh, is, uh, you know, we'll treat people once they're addicted, but we aren't not going to, uh, we're not going to do anything to, you know, help them get marijuana, which we, I think, uh, have seen through research uh, is not a, a harmful uh, uh, service to provide to a community. Yeah, this does seem, if we can take a step back and generalize this a little bit more broadly uh, than what is going on in Decatur specifically, it seems like a little bit of a cautionary tale or a, a microcosm of what many on the left are talking about when they raise concerns about the influence uh, and the anti-democratic influence of big money, even if it's kind of big charity. And you do see some of this uh, critique from the right as well, usually centered around particular big donors like George Soros, let's say. But I, from the left's argument tends to be that relying overly on charity or the benevolence of a handful of billionaires will have the exact effect of what we're seeing here in Decatur, which is that even though some of the spinning is arguably for very good things, things that people in the town like and appreciate, that is part of why it's a problem, because then things that are objected to by the majority of the population and which would be shut down on a, any kind of democratic basis are not objected to because what, you know, the, the, the positive um, gifts to the town could be stripped away. And people are caught into this vice grip of saying, well, if I want the, the dollars to keep fl flowing, I have to basically concede to the demands of this benevolent billionaire. And in, and in this case, you write in your article that he even managed to finagle his way, um, perhaps Ill illegally or unofficially, into be being a law enforcement official in the town, literally running around as though it was his own personal fiefdom. Is that the example? Is that the lesson that you hope people take away from your article? I think that there's uh, a lot to question uh, when it comes to uh, anyone who's able to spend so freely. And I use a phrase 
that I think is applicable, this idea of world building, uh, you know, when you have this kind of money and when you've devoted yourself to becoming this kind of philanthropist, you are able to shape the nature of a community. So to go back to the addiction uh, center for a minute, um, you know, objectively a great thing to have, but is that necessarily what the community needed? You know, was there uh, any kind of idea of this is what we want to spend money on? This is what the institutions we want to build, you know, same with the police training center that he has there. Um, uh, you know, is this what they want or is this what uh, Howard Buffett wants? I mean, I think I think it's clear that the answer is the latter. And I think it's clear that he gets to uh, build these things because he has the money. Uh, it's just uh, it's just, I think, somewhat uh, uh, disconcerting, I would imagine. And from what I heard from Decatur residents to feel that you live in this town that uh, that you and your points of view aren't necessarily being heard. I mean, specifically with the dispensary, some of the um, activists were able to get a referendum um, about the dispensary uh, in, a, in Decatur Township, which is a kind of a smaller municipality that Decatur uh, encompasses, and the uh, referendum, you know, won handily, you know, 62%. So I think there's actual evidence that the people of Decatur wanted this and they weren't able to have it. Um, and I think that's kind of, a, you know, the through line is uh, when someone has a lot of money and is able to shape institutions to their uh, will, you know, where does that leave a community? At what point are they able to come in and say, well, actually, we'd like you to spend your money this way, we'd like you to spend your money that way. The truth is, that, you know, they don't, right? They're shut out of that process uh, because it's a, it's a personal, uh, it's a, you know, private individual making their choices. I just think uh, it is interesting to think about, you know, the way we all probably as regular people feel sometimes that there's uh, more powerful, more influential people making decisions that affect our daily lives. And that's why, um, you know, to, for me, the experience in Decatur was um, uh, kind of really so interesting is because it felt like an opportunity to really see that in action. Hmm. Amos Bashard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Some of DeSantis' top donors are ditching him. The Florida governor and GOP presidential candidate has seen his numbers in the polls slip a bit, and with it, the collection of big money backers that built up his campaign war chest. Some of them are leaving, too. That's according to Politico. Now, DeSantis has lost over two-thirds of big boosters, including those who did support him in the 2022 midterm elections. In an interview of The Rubin Report aired yesterday, DeSantis brushed off his sagging standing next to frontrunner Donald Trump. Let's watch. Some of these primary polls are what they are. I mean, you know, you, you followed my re-election race. There were polls that had me up by one or two points, and I won by, you know, almost 20 points. And so sometimes when you have this volume of polls, clearly polls are expensive. And so if you're doing them every day, you know, either someone's funding that with an agenda or not. But I also understand, you know, you're running against uh, somebody who is 100% name identification, probably the most famous person uh, in the modern history of politics. Uh, but what I think that, that it shows, and I think we have data after the debate to show this, is that you know whatever he's at, he's got some that are very hard for him for sure, and then he's got a lot that are soft. And those are people that you know they're willing to, to support somebody that's strong, uh, that has a record of delivering on America first principles and that would be a, uh, a, a big time um, a change agent as president. They are not going to vote for somebody uh, who's just going to go back and be a managed decline Republican. Now, a new CNN poll shows Trump still leading the GOP pack by double digits, but only one percentage point apart from DeSantis in a head-to-head -head matchup against President Biden if the election were held today. Here to discuss DeSantis' future on the trail is Amber Athey, one of our co-hosts and editor for The Spectator. Welcome 
Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's good to be here. Okay, what do you make of Ron DeSantis' response there to these less than ideal poll numbers? Does he have a point that these poll numbers this far out aren't that predictive? Or does it feel more like he's just trying to cope with a reality that he doesn't quite love? It feels a little bit like cope to me. I mean, his explanation for the not so good polls has changed over the past couple of months. When he was first asked about this, um, back when his campaign had that so-called restart, right? His explanation was that it was the media's fault. The media was being too mean to him. The media was backing Trump because they wanted him to be the nominee because they thought that he would definitely lose to Biden. That explanation obviously didn't hold much water because the media's coverage of Trump has been overwhelmingly negative and really focused on these four indictments that have come down. So the idea that they're being particularly hard on DeSantis, I thought was pretty ridiculous. And now his explanation is that, well, the polls might be slanted or, you know, somebody with an agenda is paying for them. So they're not super predictive. I just don't really buy it at this point. His campaign has been floundering basically since he announced and even before he announced, really, because he took so long to just come out and say that he was running and respond to these attacks that Trump was putting on him. So he's been lagging for such a long time that this just feels a little bit like sour grapes. Yeah, I don't look, I don't want to count him out yet by any stretch of the imagination. He's concentrating. He's doing an Iowa strategy. He's spending a lot of time there. Um, if he were somehow to pull up, you know, pull off an upset win there, it could buy him a positive media cycle. It could reverse some of those poll numbers. Obviously, we're a long way off from that. Um, do you think it's possible he could be helped with uh, and I, I hate to say this or even acknowledge it's about to take place, but if there's a wave of COVID or something and then more, you know, we're already seeing mass mandates come back in like very just like a couple schools, things like that. But if, if the COVID stuff does come back and like reminds people that, I mean, that was right, his claim to fame. That was the thing people really liked him for, the things that even, one of the only things that even the diehard Republican primary Trump base possibly like about DeSantis more than Trump is the COVID stuff. Could that work to his advantage? I think it would help, but I don't know that it would give him the boost that he needed. And the reason why is that I think, you know, people criticized Trump really heavily when he first came out against DeSantis. And he kind of started with this attack line that DeSantis was rewriting his record on COVID. He wasn't actually as good as he said he was, that Trump did everything right. And I don't believe Trump handled COVID very well at all. But what he did by bringing that up so early in the race is he basically made that a moot point, right? He said, let's litigate this now. Let's get it out of the way. Then three months from now, if we're on a debate stage together and that's the uh, the difference maker that DeSantis wants to bring up, we've already talked about that. The voters are tired of hearing of it. So it was really a smart um, sort of media strategy to, to litigate that really early. So even if these COVID uh, restrictions or mandates start trying to come back, I just don't think it's as much in the lexicon as it used to be. And even at that first debate, you know, Fox hardly ever asked about COVID. It was hardly brought up in that debate at all. Even though at that time we heard that some colleges and some localities were planning on bringing mask mandates back, some companies were bringing them back. So the ship has almost kind of sailed on that. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm curious what you make, Amber, of Nikki Haley's numbers here. It's kind of incredible. She beats Biden 49 to 43 percent in a matchup. I think that's the biggest 
spread uh, of any of these matchups, yeah, making is. her the most electable candidate among this kind of crowded Republican field. Are you surprised by that? And to what do you attribute that? I'm not necessarily surprised. She is kind of seen as the more moderate establishment candidate out of a lot of that group. And she also has the benefit that she has held back a lot of her attacks on the former president, whereas the other moderates have been pretty open about, I mean, honestly, kind of despising Trump, which, of course, angers his base and makes them less likely to support him. Um, but I think what you're looking at across that poll that's interesting is that the electability argument that has been made by a lot of Trump opponents is not as important as they'd like you to believe. Trump is still leading Biden by one percentage point. Yeah, that's basically a dead heat, but so are a lot of those other candidates. It's really, really tight um, on the Republican side against Biden. So this idea that you have to get rid of Trump because he's not electable, I think doesn't really hold water. That argument is going to go out of fashion pretty quickly for these other candidates. And on the Nikki Haley front, I think the Republican base is going to look at her and they're going to have to decide, is electability more important than, uh, you know, wanting someone in the primary process that represents my views? And traditionally, primary voters want someone who represents their views. That's why we end up getting a more conservative nominee most of the time as we come out of this process. And Iowa voters and New Hampshire voters have been polled on this fact. They tended to agree with that sentiment. So voters are not just looking at electability. They're also looking at someone who represents them. And we might have heard a lot of applause on that debate stage for Nikki Haley's stance on Ukraine. But we have to remember who's attending those debates, right? It's corporate donors. It's uh, it's very much the political class. It's consultants. It's people who work for these campaigns. So the applause and jeers you hear in that room are really not representative of the party. Yeah, there's no question in my mind that Nikki Haley, you know, represents a, um, a a version of the Republican Party of the conservative movement that is at this point very old-fashioned. Of you know, she's I mean, she's very obviously a neoconservative. She doesn't really try to hide that. It, it came out in the things she had to say on Ukraine and other subjects. And that is so um, ill-fitting with what um, with what the base wants these days. Um, I mean, it's Ill I have my differences of opinions with the conservative base on a lot of things. This is not one of them. I don't really want to see a return to neoconservative foreign policy either. Um, so I so I agree with you that you know if it's well, she's the most electable, but she really is leans into these policies that we didn't like very much even in like the late aughts, and certainly don't like now. Um, that's not going to be a, a winning argument for her, but uh, but you know maybe there's there's some middle ground on the electability question. But when you see the rest of them, that it's all you know one or two points, it's going to be close regardless of who it is. Um, it probably won't matter to the to the. Although is there a, is there a version of it where it's like you shouldn't care, care about electability so much, but Trump poses a specific risk that the other candidates don't because I like they're I mean they're literally suing to keep him off the ballot right now right, right. like there's some probably crazy probably not likely but non-zero chance that he like literally can't run for president because of all the <laughs> scheming he brings out that uh, that uh, literally anyone else doesn't there's definitely a balance that I think voters are trying to find when they're you know considering these two uh, either detriments or attributes on electability and policy and ideology. And Trump is a weird case here because even with this, you know, one point advantage, basically a dead heat, this, these uh, electability polls, um, to, back to DeSantis's point actually, are, are not very predictive. 
because yeah. we're talking about a hypothetical race. The primary polls are not a hypothetical, right? Those are in real time. But when we're putting a potential matchup between whoever's going to run against Biden, that's so far in the future. A lot can change between now and then. The uh, policies that are going to be discussed are very different. At this point, Trump hasn't even started really running against Biden. Biden's campaign has gotten off to a pretty slow start. The vast majority of the coverage of Trump has been related to these indictments and the potential of him not being on the ballot. So things could could swing pretty drastically if he becomes the nominee and he actually is running against Biden. I actually suspect that you will see a bigger gap in the positive direction on electability for Trump because the race is necessarily going to have to be a little bit more policy focused as opposed to just, well, that guy's under indictment, right? Because they're gonna be going head to head. The conversation's going to look a lot different. Yeah, and I do suspect that that policy focus will boost Trump over a lot of the other candidates who have on the whole huge toward more traditional establishment Republican policies, particularly with respect to foreign policy. Thank you so much for joining us, Amber. This was interesting. Thank you both. Will Hunter Biden, the son of President Joe Biden, be indicted by the end of the month? That's what a new bombshell court filing is saying, according to the filing from yesterday, signed by special counsel David Weiss. Hunter Biden may face gun charges that could put him in prison for up to 10 years. Now, the president's son could face charges of illegally possessing a gun while using drugs, according to the Daily Mail. The Hunter Biden had reached a deal that would have allowed him to avoid trial for the gun charges if he had abided by parole conditions over the course of two years. But according to Weiss's filing yesterday, charges that could land him in prison for up to 10 years, quote, appear to be back on the table. Hmm. In more Hunter Biden news, as Vice President Joe Biden's staff allegedly colluded with Hunter's business partner on immediate response to Burisma corruption allegations, according to the House Oversight Committee. Representative James Comer is calling on the National Archives to provide complete and unredacted documents relating to the office of the vice president colluding with the Biden family and their business associates, the Oversight Committee writes. According to the committee, one example of these communications is from December 4th, 2015. Eric Schwerin, a Biden family business associate, wrote to Kate Bedingfield in the office of the vice president, providing quotes the White House should use in response to media outreach regarding Hunter Biden's role in Burisma. Representative Comer recently discussed the alleged back-and-forth emails while on Fox News. We believe that many of these that were using the pseudonyms also had redactions that pertain to things about Hunter Biden, even redacting the, the fact that he was copied on these. So what Joe Biden's always said and the mainstream media has always gone along with is that, well, there was no, why are you going, why are you investigating Hunter Biden? He wasn't a part of the government and Joe Biden had a firewall between the government and, and his son. That's not true. Mm. We've proven that in the last two weeks. There are emails that went back and forth where Hunter's legal team was telling Joe Biden how to spin the narrative about the corruption he got caught in. Joining us now to weigh in is former special assistant to President Biden, Michael LaRosa. Welcome, Michael. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. All right. So obviously part of the bombshell news here is the realization that uh, Hunter Biden may be facing real prison time uh, before the end of the month. Uh, how is the White House responding to this possibility? 
Well, I, I don't I don't know if I've seen a response from from the White House yet, and and generally they they try to wall themselves off from uh, this the legal and personal situation um, that's happening with the president's son. Um, that said, uh, if the reporting's correct, something must have changed with the special counsel. I think it would be you know the public at least all of us would love to know what has changed. Um, the law hasn't changed. The facts haven't changed. Um, we know that there's been political pressure. Maybe that's what's changed, uh, political pressure from Republicans. But we're not, nobody, it's very unclear to everyone else on the outside, at least, um, about, about what has changed. Uh, Hunter was uh, living up to the, the terms of his plea agreement. Um, he, you know, it, it's important to remember, first of all, it's important to remember that this investigation went on for five years. Now, it's longer than the Monica Lewinsky investigation in Whitewater. Um, and there's good question um, whether or not this would even be opened as an investigation were it not um, a political threat to the former administration. Um, but it's important to remember that David Weiss did not plan or prepare to charge Hunter Biden after five years of investigating with any crime um, a couple of a couple of months ago or a couple of weeks ago. So I think we need to find out what has changed. Well, here's what I, I think has changed. It was the um, awareness among the public and then also among the judge involved in the case that the um, that the arrangement, the plea deal, would involve protection from further prosecution de coming down the road, not even and potentially broader than just related to gun or tax or drug issues, um, and it would would provide significant protection from investigation into the kind of influence peddling that is actually the root of the of of, of the of what Republicans or anti Biden people yeah. or the public at large care about. Right, is whether the Burisma stuff that the Chinese connection, whether, the, you know, Joe Biden was involved in that based on what we've learned about the calls that he was a part of, the dinner, et cetera. So I think that's what's changed. And, you know, and get, you know, given that, I mean, fine, fine, then maybe there's more pressure to bring a, you know, a conviction um, on the gun issue, but which I don't, you know, it's not something I'm, you know, lining up to make sure he goes to jail for this. And probably most people aren't. But don't you think it's a, it's really a question about the influence stuff? Uh, no. I don't think that's within the scope of. I don't think that's what the government has been investigating. They've been investigating a tax issue, a I, I believe a FARA issue on registering as a foreign agent uh, or, a, or a lobbyist, um, and they were uh, investigating a gun issue. Um, that's what we know that they were investigating, and that's a year ago. That's what they narrowed the scope of their investigation down to. Now, the the Congress can play politics with Burisma and and influence peddling. I don't even know what that means. They've yet to come up with with, with some kind of crime the president has allegedly committed. I, I don't know what they're doing, um, but David Weiss has been pretty clear about the scope of his investigation that involves. Um, the tax issue, but filing his taxes late, which millions of Americans do. He paid them back with interest um, and a gun he owned for 11 days, um, never loaded, never fired. Um, and they usually don't charge people for uh, some kind of first time violation of that either. So um, again, it's, it, it will be interesting to know what has changed within the legal context of, uh, of this case. But um, Michael, Arisma, go ahead. So 
I think that all of us here, I'm sure there's some people who have a purian interest in talking about Hunter Biden as just a kind of a complicated guy and who want, who want to talk about the gun charges and the drugs just in a salacious kind of fashion. But between all of us, I think that we all recognize that we would prefer to see fewer people go to jail, a smaller fewer a prison population. We recognize that there's a way that this can be politicized to try to hurt Biden through his son. But when we're talking about why it is that there was a change in the trajectory of how we thought this plea deal was going to go, it was specifically yeah. about the issue of prospective immunity. And the judge looked at the deal, and it wasn't about saying, well, he needs to, to do harder time for the tax charges or the gun charges, but to say, to design a deal that would shield him from any liability, any culpability on these other charges, on the uh, accusations of influence peddling and the like, that really is at the core a, of that's this. Not, that's not part of the—that wasn't part of the—influence is, peddling is a very loose term, and that's more of a political— Issue well, for Congress. Let's talk specifically that's what about they're dealing it. with. Well, then let's but, talk specifically about what is meant what by. What you're saying, Bree, is that something must have changed that is significant and within the scope of the DOJ's investigation. Um, no, no, that's not now, what I'm saying. I'm saying you, the judge, what, what, wait a minute, I, Michael. What I'm saying is that the judge looked at the immunity and said, basically saying that you're not going to be able to go down for anything else that you've do done widely outside of the scope of the tax and gun charges is not how the law works and only seems to be on the table because there's some anticipation that you might be charged with something else that may come out of some other investigation. That's not to say that there is proof, obviously, at this time that there has been any influence peddling or any wrongdoing. But given that there's no proof, why build a deal that would prospectively guard him from any liability in that other area? Isn't that what has happened? Again, I think you're, what you're referring to is the registering as a foreign lobbyist part of the investigation. Um, now, I don't know about you, but when you, when two parties sign an agreement, submit an agreement, openly discuss uh, their agreement, um, that's usually an agreement. So both sides were actually on the same page, and it's not unusual for judges to, to question pre-trial um, uh, plea agreements. Now, and that's what happened. The judge questioned it. She didn't say it wasn't the law. She just said, "Are you aware of of?" what is your interpretation because this is my interpretation and then the deal broke apart and we don't know why and that's why we're here today because we don't know what has changed barisma is a, is a completely know. separate issue it's but, a completely but, separate yeah, issue yeah, the, yeah the, it, it's the, the the change is that the as as the judge discovered that this was going to be um, immunity for a potential future investigation. And, and you're right, you're saying, I, I agree with you that the David Weiss investigation has been limited to these things. The question is whether that is appropriate given the, or, or maybe it's appropriate for David Weiss because he wasn't given enough of a mandate. This is ex exactly what Republicans are mad about and have lost faith in him about. But what they really want to know is whether it's going to be looked into, I mean, given, you know, give, given that, right, Joe Biden as vice president, bragged about um, something that went went down in Ukraine with that prosecutor and that that was part that was then uh, part of the reason Trump was impeached the first time and that involves Burisma and Hunter Biden and now we've learned about the calls and the dinner so yeah no it's good that we're talking about this because it's yeah. important for the viewers to understand the context and the separation and the difference between the two. Uh, it's important to know that the Attorney General and uh, David Weiss have both said uh, they had he had all the latitude in the world. He never, uh, he could have charged 
uh, Hunter Biden with any crime? He did not. Now let's wait and see what has changed. Now, so, so, okay, Risa, right, and you're talking about the you're, you're accusing the vice president, the former vice president of of corruption. Let's talk about Burisma. Burisma was an oil is an oil and gas company. Uh, Hunter sat on the board of. Not illegal. Not unethical. <laughs> uh, very common, actually. Go back and look up uh, Neil Bush. Um, influence penalizing is a very uh, broad term. But what I would say is that before Joe Biden ever got involved in or called for the firing of Shulkin, there was a multinational effort after Crimea was taken to get rid of Shulkin, all right? With the EU, the IMF, our allies, and oddly enough, and this is great cover that nobody seems to talk about anymore, uh, Senator Ron Johnson and Senator Rob Portman wrote a letter calling for Shulkin's firing. And if you go back and look at Devin Archer's testimony, one of the most compelling parts was when he said, Burisma was fine with Shulkin. Burisma was fine. Joe Biden wanted to get rid of Shulkin, as did the international community, as did our allies, because he was corrupt. Hunter and uh, Archer apparently didn't mind keeping Shulkin there. Archer said it under oath or in testimony. Shulkin was fine. The rest of the world and Joe Biden, again, long after Ron Johnson, long after the international community, wanted to get rid of the prosecutor. It's important for us not to have selective memories about these things and not to allow Republicans to conflate and muddy the waters. We're talking about two very different things. Vice President Biden uh, was not making, there was no corruption. There was nothing he did untoward. Um, and the Republicans were in power uh, in 2015 and 2016 to investigate him. Apparently, he was no threat then, but now we are investigating his kid now. Right. Uh, what and, has and that's Biden become president? You're, you're, you're even if all of that, all of that could be true. But why I'm interested now is that now we've learned that Biden was on a, a number of calls, or we've heard that accusation that he was on all these calls with Hunter Biden no and some of these business there's associates, no that there was a well, dinner. No, but wait a minute, well, well, there okay, is evidence there is, of that. Somebody has said. No, there's, there's testimony, yeah, no, there's, there's, there's testimony there's no of someone evidence. who was on the call. No, you can say that it's circumstantial no. evidence, but that is in fact evidence, Michael. There, there's it's evidence that- Devin Archer said. Devin Archer said, Vice President had never done business. There was never material uh conversations about the business and, and that's he why we're not to say hello a couple of times yeah. Yeah, even if arguing... he was on a call what would be the crime right so there's not, not neither robbie and i are alleging that there's a crime but michael what we're talking about is what there is then the reason then that why we're do having we care this... what the president's kid did if the president didn't commit a crime because what's the, the public there's some interest? question about whether or not it has been sufficiently investigated so for example one of the things why? that has changed is that are we investigating Weiss, Hunter or are we investigating the president? Who, the, who are we investigating here? One of the things that has changed is that Weiss asked for special counsel status. And one of the beliefs that's out there is that he felt insufficiently insulated from blowback from the White House if he did pursue an investigation in a certain Not kind of direction. Not if you believe David Weiss. So what? Not if you believe David Weiss. So, right. Well, I, I mean, that, that's said, an open question. I, a lot of Republicans have lost faith in him because he offered a deal that that immunized him from this future inquiry. That seemed like a boon to him, not even a, not even like it's just not, a slap on the wrist future. and he deserves a, a harsher punishment, but that it's actually a gift. 
wasn't immune from congressional investigations. I don't know why there's congressional investigations, because they have oversight authority. That's why. They didn't do it when they had the power four years ago. They're doing it now because Biden's the president, and they want to investigate his kid because they can't investigate Biden. Uh, that's the difference here. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I do think it's a little... I, I don't, I, I think... I don't understand what we're trying to, why we care about investigating the president's son uh, if the president is not a target. Because the okay, former president was impeached what's, what's, over a hair-related matter. I mean, I wouldn't even no, necessarily make that argument. If I could just make the argument I would make. Impe- Wait, we gotta, we, we, we gotta be careful about this. It matters, right, for history. The former president was impeached for bribing a foreign country and holding up congressionally authorized aid. That's why he was impeached. That is a high crime against the Constitution. Bribery, right? Michael- Michael, no one, is, no one is investigating Joe Biden here. The reason there is no these, investigation into Joe Biden. You, I, I want to go son. back. I want to respond because I haven't yet to this idea that nothing has changed, and why what the connection is between know. Joe Biden and this Hunter Biden investigation. I think it's really important to point to, to really underscore that the language that was struck from the plea agreement was. Uh, offering immunity for, quote, any other federal crimes relating to matters investigated by the United States. I'm sure mm-hmm. you can acknowledge that that is an incredibly broad swath of immunity. That's not to say, if there's no other, wait a minute, if there's no other investigation to be had, that's not to say he's guilty of something else. You're right. Nothing, there's been no smoking gun. But the idea that a court, that a, that a deal would be struck prematurely to say that you're not going to be you're going to be immune from any other thing that might come down the pike, does suggest to people that he's getting a, a, a level of deal, a level of immunity, a special services that other people in that position wouldn't get. And if, in fact, he is not guilty of anything else, if they don't come up with anything else, why would you even need that broad swath of immunity? But Hunter Biden what? obviously felt so committed to getting that immunity protection that he blew up the entire deal and is now potentially facing a decade of jail time instead of just saying we're going to go forward with a plea deal without that immunity protection. So do you not read anything into that at all? Well, two things. I guess what I read into it, I would hope that the Trump appointed prosecutors, including David Weiss, who were prosecuting Hunter, who were investigating Hunter, they had a reason for offering that agreement and agreeing to it. It was a signed, submitted, openly discussed agreement. You'd have to ask them why they decided to agree to something like that. Again, these are not political appointees. These are civil servants. These are Trump appointed investigators who were who made this deal it's important to remember that um and secondly uh the the other part of your question was about i'm sorry remind me brie it was about the large swath of immunity or yeah what to what to what do you attribute the idea that hunter biden wouldn't take this deal that would have have him avoid jail time for tax and gun charges unless there is an agreement for there to never be any other federal prosecution of him on anything else that might come up, say another tax charge that they haven't been able to come I up, understand. that they haven't found. It could be that he jaywalked in 1983. Who knows who it is? No. But that kind well, of really that, broad, go ahead. It's a great point. And I think the point, I, and I have no idea, um, but all I can say is that I do think you're right, that there has been some um, different treatment of uh, this presidential son and presidential child than others. Um, no, uh, there would not have been an investigation uh, into any of these charge into any of these alleged crimes um, 
under any other DOJ. If his last name wasn't Biden, they never would have opened an investigation. That's why he's being treated differently. How concerned? many millions of Americans file late taxes? All right. How many million, millions of Americans pay back taxes and pay with interest and pay the penalty as Hunter did? How many Americans uh, have first offense minor gun charges? All right. For a gun he owned for 11 days, never loaded, never shot. Right. The, the, that's that's why this is so weird and unique. And that's probably why they I, I'm only guessing I'm not a lawyer. I don't I wasn't in the room, but I can imagine maybe that's why he wanted immunity. So he didn't have to keep going through this because he's been a political target uh, because of who his father is, because of what his last name is. I mean, it's, it's any a, other it's any a, other person. It's a large country with a lot of municipalities. I'm sure there are a lot of there are probably a lot of examples of people who did the exact same thing and faced no yeah. prosecution at all. There are probably some people with less access to good um, legal counsel and financial uh, situations and got the book thrown at them yeah. for very minor gun and drug issues all the time on under, you know, policies that under <laughs> Joe Biden himself has supported, right? His, 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 uh, his drug policies are not very forgiving. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not one of those people saying that should be held against Hunter Biden necessarily. Again, I don't, I don't want to. Yeah you know, have mass incarceration, or I support the Second Amendment, I support drug legalization. I'm really not saying that, but, um, but anyway, but, but, we should. I'll, I'll leave you I, with I just, one last thing, just okay, to think go about. Ahead. Okay. All right, I wrote, a, I wrote a piece about this for The Hill. Um, president Bush, when he was, Bush 41, when he was president, his son at 30 got on the board of a, of a bank in Colorado happened to be during the national savings and loan crisis, okay? How did he get on this board? Why would he want to be on that board? His last name got him on that board, right? His, his expertise was not in banking. His expertise was not in financial institutions. Nonetheless, he sat on that board. The, the bank went bankrupt, and the taxpayers had to bail out the president's son, the current sitting president's son, to the tune of $1.5 billion dollars. A public crisis became a political crisis for the Bush family because it involved the son. Hunter Biden hasn't cost anybody anything. Hunter Biden has not. There is no taxpayer interest in Hunter Biden. There just isn't. I wish we had been able to get to the facts that motivated this segment, that there is evidence that the, there's not been a firewall between the president and Joe Biden. Now, we could talk about whether or not those are material communications, whether or not that's a red flag, but this, this is the crux of the matter. There, has, there have been representations that there have been absolutely no—but wait a minute, Michael. The initial representation was that there was no communication of Joe Biden on these calls. And then now we know that that is not true, even if it's de minimis, that that is not true. Joe Biden could have said, oh, sometimes I was on these calls just to say hello, but that's not what the administration said. They said plainly, no, I had no involvement with my son's business dealings. Now we know that's not true. Now we see that while Biden was vice president, there, was there were family Wait lawyers. Can you prove he was involved in his son's business actions by, by saying he said hello on a call, which he did three times a day with it's, his son? Well, Michael, on. only because Joe Biden, yes, only because Joe Biden made such affirmative 
basically un it's impossible to back up, frankly. Like, if, if I were to, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't claim that my own mother, who has nothing to do with my professional life, has nothing to do with my professional life, because we obviously talk about my job. We obviously talk about work. He overpromised, and now he's having to deal with the fact that there is an obvious no. contradiction between the things we that he it. said and what's coming out. So going it. on to it, what do you make of these? Michael, what I'm trying to get to, please just let me get to this. This is that's old news. The new news is these December and on December 4th, 2015, the Biden Family Business Associate Eric Schwerin writing to Kate Benningfield in the office of the vice president, providing quotes the White House should use in response to media outreach regarding Hunter Biden's role in Burisma. Now, do you think that that kind of behavior was appropriate? And is the Biden administration now going to have to respond that this is in contradiction to what he said before about there being a firewall when it comes okay. to his son? When uh, Vice President Pence's daughter was writing or write, became an author, Look, while he became, he said, he became she vice said, president, Michael, the Republicans when, when are bad too. Let's 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 no, just stipulate no, 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 to wait. that. Hold on, hold on, hold on. When the vice president's daughter all of a sudden became an author when he was vice president, wrote three books. When her publicist would email and say, "Here's how we want you to talk about the book," does that does that mean that? there was some ethical lapse on Charlotte Pence or, or the vice president? No. The vice president's kids, they have jobs, right? They're on TV, right? So their, their, their PR person sent a note to a communications person saying this is how you should communicate if asked, what is the crime there? What is the, what is the ethics violation there actually? Well, there might not be the, the one. The business, uh, I mean, yeah, we're just saying this should be investigated, but the, the business, the, unlike, unlike uh, Mike should we Pence's... Back, should we go back, back and investigate Charlotte Pence for her books? Hunter Biden is not a children's book author. By the way, Vice President Kamala Harris's niece did get sanctioned, did get a slap on the wrist for using the office of the vice president to sell merchandise. Yeah. <laughs> when you're getting a book deal when your father is vice president all of a sudden in your early 20s, come on. That's not peddling influence. Well, right. That's I, not peddling. Look, no, a, lot of, a lot of our viewers will probably, will probably say the corruption <laughs> is, un, is absolutely in both parties and that there is way too much um, uh, uh, prefer, uh, uh, preferential treatment um, to, uh, to these writ, to these well-connected political science in both parties. Like what, what you said about time. Bush is well, yeah, but that's not a but that's not an excuse or an that's, endorsement of it. It's something a that a lot of the American people are upset about. It's a fair conversation to have, but you can have yeah. that conversation. How many kids of presidents have gotten book deals or TV shows or? But also, the, the, there's a big difference between a, a book deal. Come on, deal. I feel like this is the first time look, this look. has happened. This has but his job at, at Burisma, right, was to, was because of his, I mean, they paid him, they stopped paying him as much money when Joe Biden was no longer vice president. The job was premised on his connection to his father. So I think that, that's and, and, different. And more, and, more, and more than that. It there's wasn't nothing just, illegal about that. But, but more well, than that, even if Joe Biden... How do you think Neil Bush got on the bank of a Denver, a Denver a board of a Denver, yeah. Colorado we, we bank? Gotta, we got to close the circle. It's not just that the, 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 you got the job because your father's president. Right. The We're allegation, like wait a minute, the, the allegation is that specifically, whether or not Joe Biden was participating in that, which has not been proven, I agree, that the people who hired Hunter Biden believed they could have influence at the highest levels of American government because they had hired the president's son. That's a very different thing than saying, right. you're the president's daughter, so you can write a book and people are going to want to know about it I because you're a famous like person. And, and the defense is saying they're suckers. They were idiots because there was such a firewall they had, didn't have that connection. 
I'm sorry, what was that? It's hard to believe. Kind well, of like becoming an author all of a sudden when your father becomes no. vice president. No, because right? the, the, the quid pro quo expectation is not there becoming an author with as opposed to really? a, an oil you company. Really? You, you just didn't make this person's career? And give I her mean, a it, it also doesn't it's, involve national security in the same way. Michael, it's, like, it's, really, this is, this is not... not this is not use common sense here. This has Michael, been going on. Michael, I, I this is a tale as old as time. Yeah. This I, I is not new. Yeah. We're acting like this is something new that influence and using your last name, the Kennedys, the Bushes, the right. Come on. Yeah. This is Michael, nothing new. If in someone publishes a book, the goal of the publisher is to exploit the fact that the vice president, let's say, is a famous person and that someone might care what their daughter has to say. And so the book gets published because it will sell copies. The relationship is I'm going to use the reality of this famous person to sell copies that can benefit Simon and Schuster. That is the deal. The deal is so very is different. The, Wait, what is the let conflict me finish. I'll with Hunter you. sitting on the board? I will tell you. I'm literally in the middle of telling you. The difference okay. in Ukraine is that but Joe Biden might not have been a part of this. That has not been proven, I agree. But the difference is they're hoping that they can influence American politics by and get favorable treatment by the most powerful country in the world by hiring the president's son. That is going Vice to affect president. foreign policy. That's going to affect American no. governmental political policy in a quid pro quo that does not exist in a, I'm just going to use the president's daughter as a famous person to sell books sort of a way. So you, again, that's, that's what the Burisma so, people hoped would happen. But there's nothing illegal, but there's nothing illegal about the president's son, the vice president's son sitting on the board of a, a private company. You're not it, saying that, right? No, no one here is saying that. Nothing, that is obvious I don't know how many illegal. times. There is nothing unethical. You're talking about a Yale-educated lawyer who was appointed by a Republican president to run, to help run the nation's uh, only railroad system, um, who was head of the World Food Program, what feeding I, millions I, of hungry, Michael, impoverished people around the world, and he was appointed to a gas company's board. So now you're that arguing... You're, you're arguing that, that Hunter Biden was qualified to take that position at an oil and gas company and that he had experience was, and was, was actually Neil, qualified. Was, was Neil Bush qualified to sit on no, the board? No, but nobody, everyone would, everyone would okay. happily right. condemn whomever else illegal. did this. All right. It well, is not we, illegal. It is not unethical. Can I just say one, one, it is one not other uncommon. thing? Sure. It's worth noting that there. This is this is why Biden's in hot trouble because in hot water because he's made the following kinds of statements. On this, on September twenty first, twenty nineteen, he was asked, "Have you ever spoken to your son about his overseas business dealings?" Joe Biden said, "I have never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings." Again, it's not that there's a crime in speaking to your son about his overseas business dealings, but he just went so far in the other direction that he's so being caught in obvious magic. lies yeah. now. You're talking about semantics. Like he should have been, I don't know what, more careful with how he used yeah. his words. Is that what, is that what this is coming I, down to now? I, yeah. I, I, well, I okay. with, how, with his words and, and potentially should have been more careful with, you know, calling his son during business dinners, which is the very thing that that uh, Hunter Biden's position w w existed to have was access to the father. What's illegal about that? Did he? I'm not saying it's illegal. I don't know, but I'm saying there's there's more there than I than I knew before. And you know, you cited statements I, that people made years before without knowledge. I do think that there is a wish that there is something there. I do okay. I, I do believe that there is a part of of the Republicans that uh, that are hoping something is there. Um, unfortunately, well, that might we be can't true, find anything but... on the president. We have to go after his family, his son, and his brother. And look, maybe this is fair game. Maybe this is new politics. Just say the word. Let us know. Let Democrats know who's in play. Are in-laws in play? Are siblings in play? Are, are, who else is in play? 
because we want to play by the same rules now. Because if children are, are in play in politics now, whew, well, we have to go look where everybody's old. making yeah. their money. I, I think many conservatives would say man. that the Democrats started that with Trump and the Trump family. I, I, that's, I think, a claim that I'm not saying I'm necessarily making that claim, but I'm They were talking about Chelsea Clinton's braces. I mean, come on. Like, they've always been in play. But come on, Hunter Biden is not a child. Hunter Biden is not like Baron Trump or something. He's an adult. Children had government jobs. Yes. They worked I, in the White House. And, they worked and I, in the White House. I thought the nepotism under the Trump administration went wild, but I think a lot of our viewers aren't going to be satisfied with the idea that all politicians get to be nepotistic and we should look the other way because both sides yeah. do it. We would rather there be actual accountability on both sides. But look, the, yeah. go, go ahead. I'll, I'll give you the last I, word. No, I just, it's, this has just turned into a rabbit hole because I do, and I think that's the problem, right? It's frustrating when you have a political opponent. Yeah, yeah, can't nail them to the wall. I get it. You turn to the kit. You turn to the family. You turn to wherever you can to try to muddy the waters. Look, if if President, if the if the Obama White House knew what Hunter Biden was doing, which they did, which the State Department did. If they thought there was some conflict of interest or the vice president of the United States was making money off of his kid sitting on the board of a gas company, they would have done something about it. And you know what? So would have the Republicans who were in power at the time. Michael LaRosa, we do really appreciate you being willing to come on the show and engage with uh, with your perspective. It's important for the audience to get balanced and to be able to hear from all sides of this. So we do sincerely do appreciate you being willing to join us. Thanks a lot. Of course. Love it. Mm -hmm. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was grilled in yesterday's press briefing on Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidance recommending kids mask up in indoor settings regardless of vaccine status. Let's watch. Especially with the president going to Congress to ask for more money for a new vaccine and more money for the CDC, should we keep funding these studies if the CDC is not making guidance that follows the results of those studies? Here's what I'll say. Uh, we did something that the last administration was incapable of doing, which is putting to forth a strategy to really truly deal with COVID-19 and this pandemic. They were incapable of doing that. We put forth a comprehensive plan and we are now in a different place than we were two years ago, a year ago. We are in a much better place to fight COVID-19 and we have the tools and that includes masking, that includes uh, vaccinations. And as you know, uh, CDC and FDA said they're going to have vaccine by mid-September, and we're going to make sure and con con continue to do what we have done the past couple of years is inform folks, let them know that these new vaccines are here, that they have to make sure to take the inf their flu vaccine and also the RSV. The reporter cited a piece published last year in The Atlantic revealing that after examining several studies on mask mandates to evaluate the efficacy of CDC's no-end-in-sight mask guidance, the writers came up, quote, empty-handed. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden joked yesterday about masking. Let's watch. Lord, everybody. Let me explain to the press. I've been tested again today. I'm clear across the board. But they keep telling me because this has to be 10 days or something, I got to keep wearing it. But don't tell them I didn't have it on when I walked in. 
I mean, that, yes, that's the indifference to uh, government health guidance that I like to see. That makes me more enthusiastic about Joe Biden saying, they tell me I should wear this for another five or 10 days, to hell with it, I'm putting it away. That's my president. Um, I want to go back, though, to what Karine Jean-Pierre said. What did Trump, what did the Trump administration do differently or so wrong or bad on COVID with respect to vaccines? The, the, the vaccine, the Operation Warp Speed happened while he was president. I do the vaccines, think, I mean, Joe Biden got yeah. a little bit lucky that they came out as soon as he became president, they were finally ready. And he, I, I guess she's kind of taking credit for that there. That doesn't seem fair. Yeah, I don't know how much there was any there there, but there was definitely a public perception that Donald Trump couldn't be trusted with vaccines. And I do think that it's a large part of why Biden ultimately is able to win yeah. in 2020. Um, that one doesn't seem fair. Look, I, I, I think the, the question that's being put to her is a good one for different reasons that I'm sure you do. The Biden administration has made a big show of saying that the pandemic is over. They have not only ended or had their hands forced on ending any kind of uh, vaccine mandates, mask mandates on a local level, have diminished to such an extent that when one or two schools pop up around the country, we do a big segment about it, but it's as, it's as common as litter boxes in uh, high schools. <laughs> high school well, bathrooms. no, it's, that's not true. No, that, I, no, that those, those literally don't exist. Don't exist. Right. I, I'm but just, some schools I'm just are masking. And... Yeah, it's, uh, some schools are masking. You know, it's very, 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 very rare. And that's by design. I think the Biden administration knows that there are those who might be his political opponents that would get a lot of juice out of being able to talk about um, authoritarianism during COVID. We talked about this in an earlier segment. Part of the wind going out of Ron DeSantis' sails feels attributable to the fact that no one really cares as much anymore, that he made the quote-unquote right decisions on COVID to a, lot, a, a big percentage of the population. That all seems like in the real, real mirror. So from a political perspective, Biden might have made a good bet in saying, I ended COVID. The question remains, as we are in the middle of another resurgence, uh, and as we contend with, we don't talk about it here, but there's a lot of conversations happening elsewhere about new research about the um, cause, causality behind long COVID and what the longer-term health costs are going to be on society from people suffering from um, uh, these kind of prolonged illnesses, if that's going to be a, a good and safe bet. He's also an extremely old president that people have concerns about because of his age. His wife currently has COVID. Um, the glib flailing around of, I'm not going to wear this mask. I mean, it might play well, again, with a certain part of the population, but he has to contend with the inconsistency between the guidelines that are promulgated by his own agencies and what he is choosing to do. Now, many guidelines, as we discussed last week, are simply that, guidelines, and nobody takes them very seriously. Only drink, you know, right. however many drinks of alcohol or how many drinks of coffee and exercise this many numbers of hours, minutes right. a day. Most people don't do that. And we recognize that we're just kind of taking our lives in our hands, and it's just advisory. But it is out of step with the emphatic insistence that there was all of this moral uh, morality in terms of uh, complying with COVID guidelines just two years ago. And I do think that there's something unsettling about not only saying COVID is over, but ending all of the support systems that existed for people who did want to choose independently to protect themselves from a virus and from the consequences of long COVID by not circulating the free tests anymore and never having really provided any kind of um, free masks to the general public. 
Look, I think everyone should make whatever choice that they want to protect themselves. You know, you can always you can choose to do more if you want to do that. If you want to um, wear a mask in any context, I think you should be able to do that. I don't think it should be stigmatized um, as long as it's not being forced on other people. And I, you know, you, you said a minute ago that right, it's very we're still at, we are still at the stage where the mandates on masks and, and vaccines are rare and are mostly concentrated at the school level. Um, and I, I hope it remains that way. But I got to say, I'm a little worried. Um, I, I'm, I'm worried that, um, and, and, and now I, I think if Biden has good political sense and control of his party, you're right that he would shut that stuff down because it's not politically popular to continue requiring these things. You can make available without requiring. But I worry that, you know, rogue agents or just agencies that kind of operate on their own, you know, what if, if are they going to get brought back on, on uh, planes? That would be the big, uh, that could be a big tipping point. I think that would be a disaster for, for the Biden administration's re-election pro, uh, uh, prospects. And I think maybe he does realize that, but we'll have to see. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to mask up on a plane I would advise it for at least the runway portion when there's no air circulating and no ventilation whatsoever. Um, and that does put any flight attendants in a little bit of a tricky situation because, you know, presumably I think they are not supposed to mask, which means they don't really have any control. It's kind of like um, part of the rationale behind uh, banning cigarette smoking was that employees of restaurants and bars didn't have any choice in the matter as to I mean, whether or not they wanted to to post banning that as well but know, all, I, all these years no. later I, I do think the public consensus is that it's a better a better world um, so you know people can do what they're gonna do but I, it is very frustrating to me that there's absolutely no push to have the government do anything about giving people health care to provide for long COVID or providing testing that will enable people to make decisions about when they should and should not be masking? Well, what do you mean no support? I mean, they gave, I mean, for schools got, right, $300 billion to do whatever they want with. And that and they hasn't been put into effect, and there's absolutely no push to make sure that people implement air purifiers, which have been demonstrated to have much more significant effect yeah. at diminishing the spread of COVID than masking. Everyone's hollering at the government to not do stuff. And I'm, you, you guys are getting a little confused about the government and its role. They're happy not to do stuff. They're happy to leave you to your own devices to suffer and flail in the way that you're going to suffer and flail. And I'm afraid you're all going to look up and realize, oh, crap, I'm the one that is bearing all of the brunt of the consequences of this pandemic. And I, you, you can be arguing for your freedom at the same time that you're arguing not to be left to be sick and to die in a country that has no universal health care system, where both Joe Biden and Jill Biden, if they get COVID, they can get support, they can get time off of work. They're not going to have um, to deal with uh, uh, long-term illness, illnesses on their own. They've got good government insurance. I just hope that people keep keep their, their eyes clear and, and don't, don't, I guess, be careful what they wish for. Because you're not getting any help. I think that Biden's purely backed, fully backed off of COVID. I don't think you're going to see anything coming from the Biden administration with respect to any kind of mandates. And you're also not going to see anything from the Biden administration with respect to policy that will help you live your lives through what could be an ongoing health crisis. I mean, look, I would certainly rather, if, if, if the government's going to do something, I would certainly rather it do something that's voluntary and supportive 
rather Me too. than controlled and forced on Me people. Me too. I've set that thought up. Was, I'm not I mean, a mandate person, but yeah. I think there, there needed to be a lot more in the way of carrots. But no one wanted to hear it. If I if I say the government should keep sending tests, if I say the government should um, uh, send vegetables to your house uh, so that you can stay home through a quote-unquote lockdown, if I say the government should keep paying you um, uh, checks that enable you to stay home from your job to prevent a spread in a pandemic. There were a lot of people who were both against those policies that would make it easier to voluntarily social distance and stay at home at the same time that they were against people who were forced to go into, into public having protection from the virus they were exposed to. When we were speaking to the expert, the gentleman from Sweden, about their own policies, part of the message that he had to share was that, one, there was more social cohesion and a desire to voluntarily do those kinds of things, but also that people had the social support to do it, that they were more likely to have housing, independent housing, and live alone and to be able to social distance from their families because they don't have the same housing crisis that we're dealing with here, where people are ended up having to pack, pack together and be exposed to each other, that they had jobs that were more likely to make allow them to work from home. Here we, and Business Insider, every other day, we see some article saying, CEO says it's toxic, unhealthy, and bad to work from home. Get back to, into the office place so we're not wasting money on all of these empty buildings that we signed 10-year leases on. <laughs> I mean, there's obviously like a conflict of interest there. And I, I, I am personally very wary of any government mandate. At the same time, that shouldn't be a license to be indifferent to what it takes to stop the spread of a pandemic. Those things don't have to be in tension with each other. And I've been frustrated about this discourse the entire time, because it does feel like if you're anti-mandate, you have to be blasé about the very real realities of what this pandemic could bring long term in this country and the world. All right, we'll continue to follow the potential return of mandates, and we will have more rising right after this. Pretty damning new polls for President Biden. This new CNN poll found that 67% of Democratic and Democratic-leaning voters surveyed said they would like their party to nominate somebody other than Biden, which is up from 54% who said the same in March. Now, also from the CNN survey, nearly half of all voters, or 46% of them, said any GOP nominee would be a better option than President Biden. 32%, on the other hand, said they prefer the sitting president over any of the Republican hopefuls. Mm. Meanwhile, another poll found frontrunner Donald Trump is trampling Biden among the politically disaffected. Unlikely voters, a Suffolk Full University uh, USA survey published yesterday found Trump outperformed Biden in a hypothetical 2024 presidential election, polling at just over 27 percent, while Biden received 15 percent. The bulk of the 900 people polled remain undecided, while 8 percent support Green Party candidate Cornel West. I was seeing uh, Zed Jelani, former um, co-worker of yours at The Intercept, uh, works for News Nation now, he's been on the show in the past, saying that, you know, this, uh, urging a little bit of caution here, I mean, polling really well among unlikely voters isn't isn't the, the milestone uh, you might think it is, um, and that if, if Biden is gaining, or the Democrats, not Biden specifically, but Democrats in general, if um, affluent, well-educated um, white voters are becoming more democratic and working class um, people, uh, poor people are becoming more Republican, but those people are less reliable, less reliably going to vote. This could still actually be overall a 
positive development for the Democratic Party, as perverse as that sounds, to lose <laughs> struggling people, working people, people who have jobs that they can't necessarily go off and go vote at the polls, but you're gaining among you know, the very affluent progressives, um, that could actually be a good thing. Well, I mean, who was it that back in 2016 said that for every blue-collar worker we lose, we pick up a soccer mom in Connecticut? Hillary Clinton? Is that who it was? No, who was it? It was someone. It was some other different. It was Chuck Schumer yeah. or somebody like that. Yeah, but, which um, did not work in 2016. It, it didn't, didn't, it work, didn't in work in 2016. So, but it did I, work in 2020. I don't think that what you're describing. I don't think there's been a lot of like, oh my God, uh, Republicans are picking up voters of color, black voters. No, that's not what's happening. Black voters stay home. The overwhelming bulk of black voters just are choosing to stay home, just like most non-voters are unlikely voters or disaffected voters, are people for whom the American dream has not worked out, the social contract has not panned out. And so they choose not to participate at all. They don't believe that the Republican theory of change or uplift is better than the Democrats. They don't think that trickle-down economics works. They're not wild about tax cuts that overwhelmingly go to the rich. They're not wild about the foreign interventionism that the bulk of the Republican Party still supports. They just don't see— And the bulk of the Democratic Party. Yeah, they just don't see much of improvement on the Democratic side, and they're tired of being lied to by the Democratic Party. Um, I just actually had this debate— Yesterday on Crystal Kyle and Friends, people can tune in and watch that. I think it'll be out uh, tomorrow or later uh, over the weekend, um, where there was this question about whether or not how, how to talk about improvement, how to talk about people's gains or the, the, the economic gains or what have you in a way that doesn't feel like you are minimizing what people are going through in the current moment and the gap between what Biden or any other person in charge could do versus what they have chosen to do. And I think whether or not you—I think the confusion that some of these pundits are having as they're saying things like, well, Biden has improved the economy, and Biden has passed this, um, you know, the, the infrastructure legislation that so many presidents on both sides of the aisle promise and are never able to deliver. And we do have this new Medicare negotiation prescription drug plan that is— the first real improvement over getting um, uh, drugs included, prescription drugs included, and in Medicare under the Bush administration. Why aren't people happy about it? And I think it is because there is this like real class difference, this real gap between the people who are sitting on TV saying, well, these things on paper are demonstrably better, whereas people on the ground are saying, well, sure, maybe even around the edges, I would agree with you. But the bulk of my life, my rent costs are so high, my day-to-day -day living experiences are so dire. What is it, half the country living paycheck to paycheck? And on top of that, you know, what was the statistic back during the campaign we used to say where you know, 40% uh, of the country couldn't come up with $400 for, a for an emergency of any kind. Well, that's the case, and Joe Biden is turning on your student debt payment, the average cost of which monthly is $400 or more. You know, this is the kind of crisis that people are confronted with at the same time that they're being told that technically on paper, according to the Fed, the economy is doing better. That's just not going to fly. And so a lot of these pundits are also saying things like, well, Biden just has to stay the course. It's good that he's boring. Just keep repping the accomplishments. But again, you're seeing from these polls that the people believe that Trump has accomplished more than Joe Biden. So are you just going to keep telling people, believe me and not your lying eyes? Or is there another kind of argument that they have to pivot to that's more persuasive? Right. Well, and people have fond memories of the economy under Trump. I mean, like, I, I always bristle it when a political figure in either party does, you know, we created so many jobs. The government, for the most part, unless it's hiring people to work for it, doesn't create jobs. Businesses hire people because the economic conditions have improved or the tax system or the regulatory system is such that their business is growing and they can hire more people. The government 
mostly does. It builds some housing. But, but isn't most that the government that's by, changing the regulations? Right, I we created you you made it you you stopped harming people so that they could voluntarily arrange their resources in order to give people more economic opportunities. You you stopped you stopped crushing them. You stopped preventing that from happening. That's interesting. One of the biggest barriers to business ownership, and anybody who's in the audience who's a small business owner knows that the most significant cost um, may be challenged by real estate, or your, your rent, if you have a brick and mortar, is healthcare costs for your employees. And that's one of the m most significant things that prevents people from scaling up. Because uh, once you think over 40 or 50 employees, you have to start providing uh, health care. required to give, and when, when, depending on how many um, hours they work. Yeah, and if there were a state-based Medicare for All program, that would be completely off of, the, off of the shoulders of small business owners, and they wouldn't also have to be concerned about providing health care for themselves. I am a small business owner, and I have to buy my own health care, and it is incredibly expensive, and it is a stressor for me. Um, so, uh, you know, I, well, I, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure many employers would love to be liberated from, again, the government burden of being required to pay yeah. people health benefits. Yeah. Sure, and I that's, that's, something, that's that. one of the biggest, um, advantages, frankly, from an economic perspective of, of Medicare for all, not even getting into the humanitarian I remember my mother in the wake of, uh, Obamacare, she worked for a nursery school, um, part-time or some or some of the other employees work part-time and because of the mandate to have to purchase, uh, to have to have health care, there was a cap on how many hours the part-time people, like they would have liked to work more hours for more pay, yeah. but they couldn't do that because then it would kick in that they had, they'd have to be, the, yeah. the nursery school would have to offer health care to those yeah. people. Yeah. So, these, so are the, these are the perverse incentives I describe when I describe government's activities. Yeah, Medicare for all for sure would solve all of those issues. So we do have a, a clip. The, the mainstream media, the liberal media, I should say, is kind of struggling with how to talk about this. There was a big piece over the weekend, earlier this week in Vanity Fair, called Can Joe Biden Ride Boring to Election, where folks are really kind of committing to this idea that the fact that he's boring and, and steady is a good thing and he doesn't need to razzle-dazzle and people should just accept him as he is. He doesn't need to change anything from a messaging perspective. But there's obviously some dissonance where people just can't figure out why, why you know, the, the, a chart on a graph showing the economy is improving. It doesn't seem to be translating into confidence in the public. Let's take a look at one of those clips. There's no reason he couldn't do it again. Donnie Deutsch, there was a, in that much discussed Wall Street Journal poll this week that has, you know, Donald Trump up 46 points on Ron DeSantis and in which 73% of Americans say Biden is too old. As we talk about this long list of achievements, including that news last week that was announced here actually about prescription drugs, that the Americans say that Trump, by 11 points, has a better record of accomplishment than Joe Biden. Think about that for a minute. And by eight points, that he has a better vision for the future than Joe Biden, as all he does is talk about an election that happened three years ago. Yeah, I, that was the thing that jumped out at me, on the economy, on immigration, on issues. Donald Trump on issues. And all this thing yeah. we talk about, cult of personality. But I just wonder if there's a blurring in there in that because of his personality, that somehow that translates this kind of like screw everything, screw everything, everything sucks, you suck, that that somehow that umbrellas and becomes issues. Look, there was something that you guys said in that in that lead up, and I kind of want to bridge the gap a little bit between Joe and Mika, is not Donald Trump. 
you know, that that is unfortunately that is, I think, going to be that if I'm running the campaign is the fear of the end of democracy, is the fear of a woman's right to choose, of the fear of basically who we are ending and just make it quiet, competence, boring, to Molly's point, boring, yes, but versus the chaos, versus the uncertainty, the fear of where Donald Trump can take us unfettered in the next term. That's what we got. That's what we got. Is that enough, making people afraid enough of Trump to vote for Biden? I mean, I understand why that's the playbook they would run. They kind of, That's the playbook they ran in 2022 with a special focus on abortion. Mm-hmm. And that was the playbook they ran in 2020 with a special focus on how the press conferences he was giving with COVID were kind of embarrassing and he was kind of like contradicting people in real time and it didn't, it looked very incoherent, even though, again, the policies were were largely, the that Operation Warp Speed was exactly what Democrats would have done, I think, or they certainly were happy to take uh, take credit for it later and, and that you got a lot of the lockdown and masking policies even forced on the states that I, I think subsequently the Democratic administration wanted, um, like you got all that. So the, the, the argument, Trump's personality is chaotic. The argument that like the government's was particularly chaotic in that way didn't really hold a lot. I mean, I didn't, I'm not saying I liked it. I didn't like it, but it, I don't know that it was chaotic. Um, his tweeting is chaotic, and the media focuses on that. But yes, the, uh, the look, the, a lot of Americans um, who were Republicans or who are independent or occasionally vote for Republicans, um, again, I think as of a perception that the economy can do better, even though there's, I know a lot of people argue that the, the economy is sometimes very good under Democrats too, and you know Republicans spend just as much as Democrats and not more, and they do on defense more. and all that kind of thing. Um, but people who would have voted Republican are just not. Some of them, the uh, the you know the affluent suburban voters, are 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 won over by the threat to democracy messaging. And are there enough of them well, I, to I, cancel out the lost people? On the abortion point, uh, by, uh, Trump has not been as aggressive as so many other Republican candidates. So I do wonder, I do think, yes, the fear of getting abortion rights stripped away is a real motivator. But if it's like a Nikki Haley, Donald Trump ticket, where Nikki Haley has said a lot of very measured Uh, things about it. Don't have to worry about that. It's not going to be. And and Donald Trump (laughs) has been very um, clear that he thinks that there's been overstepping on wanting to push for these federal abortion bans and stuff. Are they going to be able to whip up the same fervor against him as they would a, say, Ron DeSantis type of person or even someone who seems to be willing to court a more right-wing section of the public's uh, opinion, like Vivek Ramaswamy? I don't know. And the, the last thing I would say is that it is difficult as an incumbent because you're having to run on your actual most recent record. That being said, what the pundits there, I think, were characterizing as chaos is to a lot of people what to a lot of people looks like fighting Mm -hmm. and when you're defending your record you it's harder for you to look like you're still affirmatively fighting because you're having to have to defend is to look back and to look like you're resting on your laurels and when you're talking about the future and criticizing the past that is energy that feels perspective and like you're going to be fighting for improvement and not the status quo. And so I do think the Democrats are going to have to figure out if they want to win a way not to, to be, be bragging about Biden's accomplishments, or at least if you're going to brag about his accomplishments, do so in equal part with acknowledging how much more needs to be done and putting a, a name and a face on those who are in the, uh, uh, creating obstacles to doing even more for the American public. The problem is that 
my cynical view as a leftist is that the Biden administration didn't do, want to do much more than what it did. And we've talked about this ad nauseum about the executive orders he could have done for student debt cancellation, the choice to take $15 minimum wage out of the first big COVID bill, on and on and on. Those have been blamed on Republicans, but I don't think fairly so. And so the Joe Biden has spent two years telling us, I can't do anything else because Republicans, I can't do anything else. So now you can't be mad at people for, for believing you when you say you're not going to do anything else to help them. Well, Joe Biden, uh, 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 Donald Trump or some of these others are saying, I can do something else to help you. Yeah. I mean, on the, on the abortion issue, I, again, a DeSantis-type person who is perceived as who is pro-life and maybe is, tur is, tur is turning off, to the extent they're turning off voters who are worried about the abortion question, again, can neutralize this and candidates should neutralize it, not necessarily the way Nikki Haley did, but the way Doug Burkham did in that debate and said there will be no federal national abortion policy because the Constitution doesn't authorize it and the states can, are going to have to make their own decisions. Mm. That's what he should do. More rising right after this. Conservative commentator Matt Walsh blasted a woman who posted this TikTok. Let's watch it. It's 10.45 a.m. on a Saturday. I'm 29 and single, and I don't have kids yet. Here's what your Saturday morning looks like when you're single at 29 and you don't have a kid running around the house. I didn't rise from my bed until 10.15. Every time I thought, I should probably get up and do something, I thought, why? Nobody's making me. I'm not missing out on anything. I went to Beyonce last night, and I didn't get home until 1 a.m., and I danced and drank my little heart out, and I didn't pay a babysitter to watch my kids as I did that. And I woke up a tad hungover this morning, which is probably why I was in bed for so long and I was just scrolling on my phone and I saw a picture of shakshuka and I thought you know what sounds really good maybe I'm gonna learn how to make shakshuka today because I have no plans and I don't have kids and I don't have a husband and I don't have errands to run I can go to the grocery store and learn how to make shakshuka so that's on my agenda today also on my agenda probably a rewatch of some Real Housewives of New York I'm also doing a rewatch of Normal People on Hulu which is really spicy and I highly recommend weirdly I'm into this documentary on Netflix about blue zone countries so I've got a pretty Walsh tweeted in response to the video, her life doesn't revolve around her family and kids, so instead it revolves around TV shows and pop stars. Worst of all, she's too stupid to realize how depressing this is. Mm. And then I, oh, I thought we were going to play a reaction from her up next, uh, but... Oh, it's okay. Well, it didn't appear on screen. Yeah, it was a gap. Why don't we come out of... Uh, The woman named Julia then put out a response to Walsh's statements about her. Let's take a look at that. Society tells me I should be in life. Hi, my name is Julia and I'm 29 and single. Yesterday, someone named Matt Walsh decided to repost a TikTok video that I posted to his 2.4 million followers on X, formerly known as Twitter. And the way that his followers bullied me in the comments, reached out to me on social media, threatened me, was honestly abhorrent. Some of his followers said that I was gonna die alone. I should actually die and never leave my house. I should be sexually assaulted. I'm pathetic, I'm a whore. And that I was dead behind my eyes. Honestly, that one kind of made me laugh because I used Kosa's concealer and I thought that it was working. No, but 
but really, if you haven't watched the video, I suggest you watch it. It's all about how I, a 29-year-old single female, decided to spend my Saturday watching reality TV, learning how to cook shakshuka, and sleeping in until 10 a.m. These people were really, really, really riled up about my choices on a Saturday. But here's the thing about social media. While it can be a really crazy place, which I experienced yesterday, it's a place where there's content for everyone. Here's who I'm creating content for. I'm creating content for people who are taking their time creating the lives that they want for themselves because it's the life that they want not something that society has deemed correct people who are feeling anxious in life because they haven't met their person yet or started a family aren't rushing or settling to meet someone because some internet troll is telling them that they're gonna die alone and you know what all right this caused a real firestorm I think for kind of obvious reasons. I mean, what do you make up the choice to try to make an example of a 29-year-old woman who does a TikTok about how much uh, she likes to relax and chill out and sleep in on the weekends and uh, cook for herself? Well, okay, look. No, no one should harass other people on social media or send death threats or rape th threats or anything else. Um, Everybody who makes content that gets big or gets noticed deals with this at some point. Uh, I'm, I'm sure certain uh, people who have certain characteristics get it more than others, um, but it happens. So if you're going to be in, you know, in the social media fray, it's something you have to expect. So that is what I have to say on that. Um, look, I don't care. She could do whatever she wants. It doesn't matter to me. And did I find it, the video she made, offensive? No. I, I did think it was, she said it kind of in a pointed way a couple times, I guess, the because I don't have kids, that was, it seemed a little mocking or disdainful of that choice, and I think that's why this struck a nerve. It's really interesting to hear that, because the overwhelming thrust of every signal and message in American society is that you have to have kids, you're a big loser if you don't. Is it? It 100% is. I mean, I don't have it kids. Is. You don't have kids. I don't feel that. Yeah, and I... I do feel it as a woman who is looked at with pingingly all the time because I haven't procreated. And I think what is really frustrating to women is to, there's actually a cover story. Well, I, I don't think that's good. I don't think anyone should feel there's shame for not There's a cover story, I think, choice. I forget in what magazine, I think maybe New York Magazine that's out now that has a big baby face on the cover and it's called something like, I want you, but I can't afford to have you. So there's a couple of things that I think were frustrating people from like a, a defense of this woman perspective. One, that so many people are delaying having children and not having them at all because they feel that childcare costs, cost of living are too high. Uh, we have exponentially high housing costs. The average cost for a year of childcare is approaching $20,000 a year, which is almost half of the average person's uh, yearly salary. And so many women are forced to do this trade-off where it's not they can't actually afford to work once they have a kid because they're not earning enough to justify having to pay for childcare at home. Um, polls demonstrate that women who are unmarried and childless are actually happier. Uh, and there are a number of reasons for that, including having more of a social life, not having to deal with the stressors of uh, disproportionately having to take the burden of the childcare at the same time that you work because everybody works now. Um, and so being able to do some of the activities that she's describing there, having leisure time isn't something that should only be reserved for people without kids, but increasingly because of the nature of the labor market and the cost of living increases, it is. 
And we don't live in a society, we live in a society that says you should have children, but doesn't offer social support. Doesn't, women are stuck with double-digit bill, healthcare bills for giving birth coming out of the hospital. Scandinavian countries send you home with a bed for your child, a little box bed for your child, and all of the care that you need. They will send a, a postnatal nurse to your home to check up on you regularly. They really make it more, they, they try to make it easier for you to have a child and to be happy and healthy. And it seems like in this country, you just get castigated for responding to the economic realities of how difficult it is by making an informed and intelligent decision for yourself. And if you happen to be a 29-year-old, she doesn't even say she doesn't want kids. She just says, I don't have them yet, which is a perfectly normal thing for a 29-year-old. Well, anyway, well, you get okay. castigated by this a multi-million a dollar, uh, someone with a million <laughs> Twitter followers for somehow being hateful and cruel. She's not objecting to childcare because of the things you're bringing up, although I agree that those are serious issues and we should make it easier to have uh, children taken care of. I would like to decredentialize the preschool system. Um, I brought this up before, but the city of D.C. has been trying for years to require you to have a uh, an education, like masters, in order to be able to babysit children. Um, you know, this is taking away jobs from <laughs> from immigrant women who could do it perfectly fine. From your grandmother type people who don't need to like enroll in school to do it. Um, but what she said, but she, like, she's not like, I, I would feel the same way if there was a TikTok video where someone was saying, oh yeah, I'm taking my kids to the park and it's wonderful and you can't do this because you're childless and you can't do this because you're childless. I, I would think that would be a little bit mean. And I did think this came off a little bit mean in the opposite direction. No one should be shamed or stigmatized for not having kids yet or if they never want to make that decision. It's fine. It doesn't matter to me. Other people's decisions are their own. But, um, but it, it wasn't, and it, but it wasn't, it was, it was. You know, look how much happier I am than you because I get to sleep in or something. I, and like also the things she's talking about are, again, I don't care. Do whatever you want. But the things she's talking about are, I, like, I wouldn't want people wrongly to get the impression that if you're in a relationship or and just in a relationship without kids or in a relationship with kids that you can't enjoy some of those things. Like, yes, your sleeping schedule does get thrown off, particularly at the very beginning with, the, with children. But, like, you do... You can watch TV with your kids and your spouse. You can cook new, interesting things with kids and spouses. Like that's part of the fun experience. Is is is, is showing uh, it, if you broaden your family to include a partner and children, is sharing things that interest you with them. Right? I don't know. I I, I don't even know how to respond. I think it's it's just so clear that what she's trying to do is carve out a little corner of an overwhelmingly hostile to single, unmarried people's space, uh, un, 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 child-free child people's space, and say, actually, you're not a depressed loser. There are actually upsides to not having a kid. I didn't see it as vindictive at all. She's simply pointing out that, like, yeah, she's probably feeling kind of bad about herself because every single signal in society tells her that because she's about to turn 30, she's a big loser. And she's saying, well, actually, I've reflected on my life, and I, mean, I do have some good upsides, and I'm going to talk about my upsides here. If people were triggered by that, they're allowed to be triggered by that. The signals are not so strong that they're actually stigmatizing this, though, because we're, we're seeing a, a, a big increase, right, in... Uh, people delaying yeah. child and having so children and, and not and and delaying marriage yeah, and, and people, just being single and people and have people fewer are, romantic partners and fewer long-term partnerships and and people are feeling increasingly emboldened to say stuff like this that they would never have said out loud before and so I, I I say kudos to her for speaking her truth you're allowed to tweet every single I like you well, cannot wait a minute to. 
you cannot open Instagram without it being person after person after person saying, oh my God, and, and I'm happy for them. But my life is so wonderful, I have a kid, I just had another baby, I just bought a first house. You, but a person is inundated, especially at that age, with a lot of people around you hitting certain milestones that are increasingly difficult, particularly for millennials. They're for the first generation that weren't able to achieve the milestones of their parents that were less well-off economically as their parents. So many 29-year-olds are living at home. I saw like a funny tweet the other day that was like uh, asking a millennial, hey, do you think your life is better than your parents? And they said, let me go upstairs and check. <laughs> is the joke, right? So, you know, it just, it seems really uncharitable. It's like, to me, it feels like if there was um, a video by a, someone who has suffered some hardship, um, let's say I was in a horrible accident and I lost the use of my legs or something. And they did a video about all the things they can still accomplish and the ways that their life was still happy and good. And then someone coming online and saying, oh my God, like, how dare you glorify leglessness? It's like, come on, like, I, 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 if this were in a context of, of forced childbirth and there were all these horrible, miserable women out there that didn't want to have birth, give birth and they had to, and she was bragging about how she escaped the pogrom, then I would say it was mean-spirited. But from my perspective, and I think the reason that her little TikTok went viral is because from a lot of people's perspective, it is refreshing and rare to hear someone say anything positive about not having children. Um, especially at an age at which approaching 30, she's going to be feeling a lot of social pressure to, to do that. I don't know. I feel like maybe this is purely anecdotal. You know, it's based on the people you know who are parents. I, I hear a lot, not so, I guess not so much on social media. I, I hear a lot about um, the hardships of it, how difficult it is. In, on, on, as someone who um, aspires probably to have children sometime in the you know, not-so-distant future for me, because I'm, I'm 35, um, it's, it sounds, like, so scary and so difficult. I, and I actually blame a lot of the kind of helicopter parenting mindset. Um, like, when I was little, when my, my cousins and everything, like, we would just be left on our own. It, it didn't feel like it was so intense or our parents felt like they had to, like, so intensely parent us at all times. Like, they had babysitters all the time. They, like, my parents went out all the time. They, if they, we went on vacation, they just took us and they just left us to fend for ourselves. And it's fine. And there are people in my family, uh, my extended family, who parent like that. It's almost in, like reverse of how like affluent they are. They, the people, the parents I know here or just in cities seem almost overwhelmed even if they do have a lot of financial resources because they feel like, maybe they feel this rat race to make sure their kid is like gonna be admitted to Harvard from age two or something. And that is a little bit of social pressure that I think is really bad and we ought to push back on. But maybe that I, doesn't I really don't answer think that any of your questions. I don't think but. it's helicopter parenting that's the big difference here. In America, federal law requires 12 pay, pay weeks of un paid maternity leave. So they'll give you technically weeks off. You're, there's no guarantee to any kind of paid maternity leave. In other countries, I mean, that's you been get, a trajectory in a more direction, right? Is more maternity leave over time. In America, there's no right to paid maternity leave. If you want people to feel good and confident and happy and having kids, you need to do what other countries do. Bulgaria offers 410 days of paid leave. Norway offers 49 uh, weeks, uh, up to 59 weeks of maternity leave at an 80% pay rate or 49 weeks at full pay. 49 weeks, that's almost a year of paid leave to have a child. I just watched, I watched another TikTok yesterday of a woman dropping her two week old baby off at daycare because she had to get off to work. This baby is fresh. 
This is, and she's like devastated. It's a horrible thing to have to put. So these are the conditions that we're living in in the country. Be mad at that, Matt Walsh. You want more women to think that there's more advantages to having kids in a family Matt Walsh than to the, not? the woman should stay home with the kid forever. I they think, should not work. I think a lot of women, frankly, would, frankly, like to have that option. But there's one of the big controversies on the internet in the last few weeks was a woman who was modeling a kind of um, trad, trad life, traditional life lifestyle, mm -hmm. who was saying like, you guys are trying to be career women and I'm living this glorious life. And she had a beautiful kitchen and like looked very glamorous and, and attractive and had like all the like William Sonoma cooking gear out in front of her. And people, people quickly clocked in the photo that she had one of those um, British big fancy stoves behind her that cost like $20,000. And they're like, let me Google who this woman is. And it turns out her husband is like a tech billionaire or something. And so there is this dishonest way in which certain kinds of conservative spokespeople or, or public figures like Matt Walsh, they miss, they, they, they say this is a good lifestyle people should do, but they really miss underestimate or misunderstand why it is that that lifestyle isn't attractive. It's not just blue-haired women saying, I hate men. It's that there are a lot of economic factors that are going into the into people's choices here. And to castigate some 29-year-old woman for saying, hey, you know what? My life isn't miserable. I was able to learn how to cook something new. Me, I would have ordered a frittata or a, a shikshuka. <laughs> but, you know, I, I stayed in and I watched some TV and actually it was okay. And I was able to socialize with my friends and get something out of life even though I don't have a kid. Like... Why on earth you would be so fragile that that would trigger you into wanting to start a firestorm against some random anonymous woman? I well, mean, I don't that know if is... anyone ever feels triggered enough to right send a hateful email or a death threat. That could be on any number of subjects. I no, I'm talking about Matt Walsh's choice to tweet it into fame. Well, Matt, I mean, Matt Walsh has an ideology that I don't share. That he, I mean, he wants the more traditional lifestyle. Um, heavily But that's my point. If, if he not... wants a more traditional lifestyle, he should be furious that our government doesn't provide for a woman who goes through the, the taxing experience of carrying a child for nine months, pushing it out, ripped from tip to tail, as they say, and then has to stumble back into work because there's no paid leave for her. There's no paid leave. Well, you go through well, all of that, not even not, to mention the, the company... bonding with the child and taking care of the child. Like that's the kind of thing, I, and I, I, that people people should be making choices whether or not to have kids, and not feel like they have to make a constrained choice because they literally can't afford to do what they might otherwise want to do. I mean, you know what I'm going to say. I'm not going to for like if businesses want to offer that policy to attract employees of the kind of or, or young mothers or people going to become mothers, then they should absolutely offer that, and it's a good thing if employers do. And I'm not going to obligate them to do that, and then you get to decide if that's the kind of place you want to work for. Hear that, mothers? All you got to do is go and find a job that offers you, like Sweden, 48 days of uh, paid family leave. I mean, the reason women work, more women enter the workforce because their labor is worth more because they've been able to get better educated and we have more gender parity. And I, I think that's a good thing. Maybe Matt Walsh doesn't think it's a good thing, but I do. But that's the reason they don't stay home. And, that's, and it's good and economically efficient and better for everybody. I don't quite understand but we could have, the point. But we could have childcare if we could legalize it. So that'd be wonderful. Then we could fix that one. There's no replacing a what the woman needs leave because she just gave birth. This is a childcare issue. First and foremost, the woman who has come out of a hospital from a medical procedure needs time to recover.
Yeah, well, a lot of businesses do offer maternity leave. Paternity, they're, they're expanding it to offering it to the, the man as well. Robbie, there is no paid leave. Do you know the, the difference between paid leave and unpaid leave? So federally, they're required to give you time off as a woman. Right. But many women cannot afford to take that time off because they're living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. They're not, because you can't make, you can't force someone to pay you money. Right. Well, in Sweden and Germany and Greece and Bulgaria, the, the wealthy country of Bulgaria, they, as a country, have decided it's a federal priority, it's a national priority to provide for women so they can keep their birth rates up, so that people can have, enjoy as a kind of a human right the ability to have children and to have a family. And we don't have that in America. Maybe that's what freedom looks like, and that's what you want. People are not obligated to pay for your that's decisions. That's right. They're not obligated. So just the if that's what we want way. in America, and that's what freedom looks like, you can take that position. But I'm just throwing out there that we have an option to design a society the way that we want our society look. There's many, many models of other countries that have made different choices. The people who live there by polls suggest that they are much happier, and that we are making choices about how we want to live. If you want freedom to do whatever you want, that's great. And you can continue to check your two-week child into a nursery so you can hobble with your diaper on back into the workplace. <laughs> so you and can the check. nursery care workers for my kids don't need to have masters of education degrees. Uh, that would be great if we could have that. But that does it for us today. Tomorrow on Rising, Michael LaRosa will be filling in for Jessica Burbank. And Amber Athey will be here at the desk to give you the news you need to start off your weekend. We had a great interview with Michael LaRosa today, so I'm really excited to see what he can do on the show tomorrow. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bye-bye. Take care.